The title itself, House of Leaves, is an antiquated term for a book, literally a house for the leaves, pages of a story. When he was five years old, Mark's mother gave him a journal that was red with gold stitching. It had a metal latch and key to secure the secrets within. She told him, you can write anything in here, whatever you want. This is your private space. This would spark a lifelong love affair with the physical form of books, which is as important to Mark Danielewski as writing itself. His text often runs berserk on the page in various fonts and point sizes. Page breaks are wild and deliberate. Carefully placed blank pages speak volumes. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, artists, and layouts. I'm your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin, and on this episode, we explore Mark Z. Danielewski's masterpiece, House of Leaves. Quote, My books are not CD players. They're instruments. A reader has to be willing to play them. End quote. His father was an avant-garde filmmaker and quite the intellectual. His mother wasn't as formally intellectual as his father, but as a family, they were always in favor of seeing movies, reading books, and bringing those subjects into long discourses at the dinner table. Mark's father, having been steeped in the 1950s and the literature of the modernists, leaned towards discussions of Freud, Nietzsche, Borges, and Sartre. They were all a part of the family's discussions and heated debates. Originally from Manhattan before his family moved to Provo, Utah, when he was 10, Mark Danielewski's youth resembled that of a bohemian, artsy version of an army brat upbringing. His father took the family on extended international adventures for up to two years at a time, and before he was 11, Danielewski and his sister Anne, who by the way is the singer-songwriter-producer, Poe, had lived in Ghana, England, India, and Spain. He wrote his first book at the age of 10, which was called The Hellhole. It began as a New Year's resolution. Now, in this resolution, he would write one page a day and end up with a completed book after a year, he figured. It was about a young kid who grows up in New York City, becomes a cocaine addict, beats the hell out of a cop, and goes to prison, which was the hellhole. According to himself, the story he wrote was pretty brutal. His father flat out thought it was immoral, and his mother was deeply disturbed by it. They basically did not want to talk about it. For at least three years, he didn't discuss the manuscript with anyone until he decided to show it to a high school teacher. This soon proved to be a mistake, given that he used one of the four-letter words still forbidden by pop culture in the novel. The teacher declared that Mark had written a dirty book. This incident made him incredibly wary about showing his work to anyone but at least it did not stop his desire to write. He would later say, that was the odd thing, that the force, the will to write, was always far stronger than the criticism that came my way. 
When I was at Yale, I was rejected at every writing seminar I applied to. In 1990, while living in New York, he received a phone call about his father being in the hospital. Cancer. Immediately hopping on a Greyhound bus, he headed west. Over the course of three sleepless nights and three sleepless days, he wrote a 100-plus page piece entitled Redwood. He barely had enough money in his pocket to buy sodas and snacks along the way, and there he was, scratching out words with an absurdly expensive thing made of polished resin and gold. He was using a fountain pen. There was something about how the pen seemed to bite into the paper at the same time as it produced lush sweeps of ink, a kind of cutting and spilling, almost as if a sheet of paper could bleed. His intention was to present this piece of writing as a gift to his father. Unfortunately, dear old dad responded to the gift with the suggestion that his son would be better off pursuing a career at the post office. This led Mark to rip the manuscript into pieces and toss it in a nearby dumpster. His sister would later rescue the pieces and tape them back together. He would later comment how he hasn't been able to find the copy, not that the physical object matters, but rather that it represents the memory of his sister's loving action. Long having a sense of a big project that he wanted to write, he began writing about characters, theoretical essays on film, sketching out philosophical ideas, and a series of essays for himself on how cinematic grammar could be applied to text. Then, in 1993, shortly after the death of his father, he had this idea about a house that was a quarter of an inch shorter on the inside than the outside. Not yet knowing what it was, he thought it was a footnote or maybe a story perhaps a poem, and then he realized it was exactly what he'd been looking for all along. It was the space where the characters he'd been working on for so long resided. It was a space where these philosophical ideas and theoretical concepts he'd come up with could be applied. He wanted to stay as true to the book as possible, and by the time he was done putting his vision down on paper, it was a 750 pages deep piece. It had taken seven to eight years and a lot of hard work, but it would still take two more additional years to achieve a final product. Talk about perseverance and patience. There are passages in which Danieluski's attitude towards prose seems to echo Hitchcock's approach to film. His text moves like a camera, slowing down, speeding up, turning corners, zooming, panning, fading. A part of House of Leaves also has roots in concrete poetry, the tiny subgenre of poetry whereby the typographical arrangement of words on the page reflects the topic of the poem. For example, in House of Leaves, when a character is crawling down a narrow tunnel, the page's layout shrinks to a claustrophobic band of words. And one of the things he is grateful for for having learned from his filmmaker father is how film has a type of grammar that intensifies the viewer's experiences. Now here's a very simple example of this that can be found in action movies. Before an action sequence, 
a director tends to present the audience with long shots and static views so the eye is fixed on a certain focal point on the screen and doesn't move. And when the action sequence actually arrives, a lot of shortcuts are applied to intensify the viewer's experience by shifting the focal point all over the screen. A good example of this can be found in Chapter 9 of his novel, The Labyrinth Chapter. The density of the text intentionally slows the reader down, reorients the reader, redresses that question of direction inside the book. However, the next chapter, the rescue chapter, only has a few sentences per page, so the reader will move through a hundred pages a lot quicker. Another important element that he would include in the novel would be the use of footnotes. He explains their use by saying, we are footnoting everything that we read. We don't recognize it as such, but we encounter an article in the newspaper and then suddenly we recall that a friend had a certain comment on that particular story. A certain bit of news that we saw on the television applies to that and we immediately assemble an idea of a story. Now, he decided to adopt that mode of thinking looking closely at the way we really process stories and how we encounter narratives and footnote them with our own personal experiences, our own emotional registers. He wanted to wrap all this up and put it on paper. Ultimately, Mark had himself a finished novel. Now came the next big step, how to convince someone to publish such an unusual piece. He bet on agent Warren Frazier, a young up-and-coming literary agent at the time, to help pitch the novel. Warren fell in love with the piece after reading through the query letter and the first 50 pages of the book. Together, they began pitching it to publishers. Thirty-two straight rejection letters would land in the post box, but then came one yes, followed by another yes. They decided on the publisher that made the most sense. Edward Kastenmeier at Pantheon agreed to meet with them. Daniel Lusky flew out to the meeting where, in front of several people, including highly respected editor Marty Asher, Kastenmeier said, We're, we're going to cut it down a couple hundred pages. That was the first time Daniel Lusky had heard anything close to this. The suggestion sent him into a state of disbelief. They wanted to cut 200 pages. Alternatively, he could just make it a better book, editor Marty Asher graciously told him. Those words stuck in his head, telling him that if he made the book better, he wouldn't have to cut anything. But then came another problem. The publisher didn't understand what kind of layout Danielewski intended for the book. They had no idea how complex it was in his mind. His sister offered the best advice. Get on a plane. Put it on a credit card if you have to. But get in front of them and show them your vision. He was promptly given 24-7 access at one of the computers in the copy room at Pantheon. After spending a few weeks locked in there, he proved to Pantheon staff that he wasn't crazy and that everything they had a question for, he had an answer. He's received hundreds of offers to make House of Leaves into a movie, but so far he hasn't accepted. 
not trusting the visions presented. Even though some have offered great amounts of money, he still has refused their offers, at time making him even wonder if he really isn't crazy. Eighteen years after the publishing of the novel, in 2018, he wrote three episodes for a proposed television series. Offering advice to others, he suggested the Jane Goodall method. This entails having a great sense of consistent patience. You have to go at it day after day for an extended period of time. He admits to writing six days a week himself, pretty much ten hours a day, more or less. The Jane Goodall method is this. You have to climb the tree and sit there. You might not get anything for a day or even a week, but eventually, on the periphery, you'll see the bushes and the trees begin to shake. Then they'll show themselves. The stories, characters, and plot lines will accept your presence. They will come up to you, and before long, you'll be picking lice out of each other's hair. But in order for that to happen, you have to show up every day. You can't show up a few days, get discouraged, and pack up, or else when you want to pick up where you left off, you'll have to start all over again. Once you've gained the trust of those stories and they're accepting you, letting you in, you can't just up and disappear. Now, the start is most likely slow, but once you get going, there's no stopping, and if you stop prematurely, i.e. you don't sit down and write every day, your mind will wander, you'll lose focus, and those stories will reject you. Retreat to those trees and bushes, never to be seen again. You have to be like Jane Goodall and camp out where the stories are, and that is at the keyboard or the pen and the paper, typewriter, whatever. Mark Danielewski finds that he does his best writing in a room without a view, with no music playing. Now, since he doesn't own a television set, there's no temptation there. He does, however, take breaks. He goes for walks, tends to business when needed, but generally he turns off everything when it comes time to write. He'll stretch and eat and have a cup of coffee in the morning and get himself in the right state to write, always staying consistently patient. As usual... Let me leave you with a final quote from the labyrinthine writer. Some writers write with this view of landing a good book deal to get things they want materially. Instead, I think the view should be the other way around. Namely, they should look at what they are prepared to sacrifice to write. If the act of writing isn't the primary focus, it shouldn't be the primary vocation. There are far easier ways to make money if money is the goal. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemour Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words 
podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Christo M. Sanchez. Narrated and edited by me, Jason Nemore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Christo M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Harden. <laughs>